0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. I love how Paul refers to the gospel as my gospel here at the end of the letter. It's like my team, my family, my city, my wife, my gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my gospel. It's the truth about my Lord, its ownership, its identity, it's my gospel. Anyway, we'll get back to that. Here's how Paul began the letter to the Romans. This is his thesis. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So how did Paul do in supporting the claims of his thesis in Romans? He claimed that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. What power? The power of the cross, which removes the penalty of sin. The power of the indwelling spirit, which enables us to overcome the sin principle in our flesh. The power to keep us secure in the protection of his grace, knowing that he will take us to glory. Who can separate us from the power of his love in Jesus Christ? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. I think Paul did a great job of laying out for us the power of God in the gospel. Paul also claimed that this power of salvation is available in, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He argued that Gentile and Jew both will be judged according to their works and both will come up short. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The problem of sin is universal, having been introduced to humanity through the disobedience of Adam. Therefore, God's solution for sin is universal, coming through the obedience of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. This gift of grace is totally inclusive to all who receive it by faith in Jesus. We got a glimpse of that inclusivity in the closing greetings to members of the Church of Rome. Their names included men and women, Hebrew, Greek, Roman, slave, free, and wealthy. The gospel is for everyone who believes. Paul further claimed that the gospel has power and universality because in it, God's righteousness is revealed. We saw Paul show us two sides to that claim. First, the gospel reveals that God himself is righteous. God cannot ignore the penalty of sin. By the cross, he paid for sin so that he might remain righteous when he forgives sin. Critics would say it's well and good to forgive sin, but this gospel makes God out to be unrighteous because it then allows people to go on living in sin but we see that grace brings a new vision, a new motivation, and a new power. Grace is not permission to sin. Grace is freedom from sin. God is righteous not only in forgiveness, but also in producing a new people being restored into the image of Jesus Christ. Critics also fault God for being unfaithful in his promises to Israel. But in this too, God has proved righteous. God has kept his promises, though his people have turned away from him. The doors have been opened wide to Gentiles, but God has not rejected the Jew. God maintains a remnant of believing Israelites, and he has a plan for the future of Israel. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God in his faithfulness to all his promises. The righteousness of God is about God. It's also about man. This is the other side of righteousness that Paul develops. Man receives the righteousness of God through the righteousness of Jesus. We are justified, declared righteous by faith. It's not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of God. And we're not only declared righteous, grace gives us new vision, new motivation, new power to actually begin to live righteously. There is a righteousness that is our own, that comes from participating with God in our sanctification. It's not perfect. It doesn't justify us. It's the first fruits of God's work in us. He is transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That work will be complete only in heaven. So we have the righteousness of God as a declared status, and we are also beginning to live out the righteousness of God in community with one another. This is Paul's declaration, and this is the argument he has made. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That gospel is universally available to all who believe, and the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Paul has invited the Romans to believe in this gospel, to live out this gospel, and to join him in the mission of the gospel. Paul expects the Romans to join him in spreading the gospel and building the gospel community. When we read the little phrases he uses to describe the people he greets in chapter 16, we hear this idea of participation together in the work of the gospel. They're in the harvest field together. It seems to me that he expects everyone to be a witness to the gospel in his or her own sphere of influence. Consider these phrases in his greetings to the men and women in the church. Paul says of Phoebe, she's been a helper of many. He says of Prissa and Aquila that they've risked their own necks for me. Mary has worked hard for you. Andronicus and Unia are outstanding among the apostles. Urbanus is a fellow worker. Tryphena and Tryphosa are workers in the Lord. Persis has worked hard in the Lord. There's this working together to build something. There is a commitment to the kingdom of Christ, which is focused on contributing to the local community of believers. To not be ashamed of the gospel means that we gladly proclaim that gospel to other people in society as the power of God for salvation. To not be ashamed of the gospel means that the gospel of Jesus is our primary focus, our primary mission of the church. We proclaim the gospel, and we invite people to believe in the gospel, and we build up one another in the knowledge of the gospel. This is what Paul's been doing for us in the letter to the Romans. He's been proclaiming to us the gospel. He's been inviting us to believe in and live by the gospel. He's been building us up, giving this this foundation of deeper knowledge about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now we've come to the end. And since Paul ends very similarly to how he began... We're going to take a moment to to look at his rhetorical structure, because that's going to help us to better understand the benediction that we have in the last three verses. So after we consider this big picture structure, we're going to look closely at that benediction to close up our study of Romans. The oldest manuscript copies of the letter to the Romans contain the full 16 chapters that we have in our modern Bibles. There's some manuscripts, old but not the oldest, that move the final benediction from the end of chapter 16 and put it in between chapter 14 and 15. So they still have everything. There's just that one little change. Then there's some later Latin manuscripts that drop off chapter 15 and 16 altogether. Since the oldest manuscripts contain the full text in our current order, we should assume that some later manuscripts made some adjustment for some reason that we don't we don't any longer know about. For example, it's possible that a copy of Romans was shared with churches outside of Rome without the last two chapters because somebody thought, well, that speaks primarily to the Romans, and they cut out those two chapters. Or perhaps Origen is right. He blames the heretic Marcion for leaving out the last two chapters because Marcion was anti-Jewish, and Paul talks positively about going to Jerusalem and bringing together Jew and Gentile. Anyway, we have the testimony of the oldest manuscript copies. They agree with us that we have all 16 chapters. It also makes sense to recognize our current 16 chapters as original because it creates a well-balanced structure. Paul has, in fact, created a chiastic balance to the letter with his use of Greek rhetorical style. Remember our previous references to Greek rhetoric. We have logos as the message or the topic, pathos, which creates heart connection, an ethos which establishes credibility. So the greetings at the beginning and end of the letter are the first frame of our chiasm. So that's chapter one, 1 through 7 at the beginning and chapter 16 at the end. In both places, Paul talks about the people, who the letter's to and who it's from. And in both places, he refers to the logos of the letter or the big picture topic which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second frame is prayer. And that's a standard element of Greek letter introduction. So we have Paul's statement in 1.8-10 that he's been praying for the Romans. That was right after the introductory greeting. Then before the concluding greeting, we have Paul asking the Romans to pray for him when he goes to Jerusalem. That's in 1530-33. to 33. So we have greeting on either end with logos, and then we have prayer as the inner frame. The third frame of the chiasm has Paul using pathos and ethos to create a gospel-centered connection with the Romans. And we discussed this two lessons ago when we went over the beginning of our conclusion in fifteen fourteen to 29. That's where we see this pathos and ethos in the conclusion. And we identified close parallels between that section and the pathos and ethos employed by Paul at the end of the introduction in 111 to 17. So we have people in Lagos in the outside frame, then prayer in the second internal frame, then pathos and ethos in the third internal frame, and then the development of Lagos in the middle or body of the letter. That's the biggest portion of the letter from chapter 118 to 1513. The big picture topic is the gospel, and the body of the letter develops that topic. It's a big theme. There's a lot you could say about the gospel, and Paul's not going to write a fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have that covered, so Paul's not going to focus on the who of Jesus or the narrative of the cross. Paul focuses on the how of the gospel. How is this gospel God's power for salvation? How does that work? And how does the gospel reveal God's righteousness? And how do we live out this gospel? Those are the questions that Paul has addressed through Romans. So now we're ready to look at Paul's last three verses. It's loaded. In this one sentence, he's going to refer to his purpose, his topic, his antecedent, his scope, and his goal. It's all one sentence. So let's read the text. This is Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27. And then we'll address each of these big picture elements. Now to him who is able to establish you. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and has been made known by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So these three verses are one of those long sentences Paul likes to write, and as with all of Paul's long sentences, the best thing to do is to first identify the subject and verb. The sentence is a benediction, and so it has kind of a strange form. The main subject and verb do not come until the last few words, and at least in the English, the order is odd. We could shorten the whole benediction just down to this. Now, to God, be the glory. Amen. But to see the subject and verb clearly we have to turn that sentence around so that what we have is glory be to god so glory is the subject be is the verb and to god is a prepositional phrase that's our main sentence that's probably more complicated than it needs to be the main thing to recognize is that paul starts the benediction in verse 25 now to him and then he's going to say everything he wants to say and he's going to end in verse 27 to the only wise god Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. So we can separate out that beginning phrase in verse 25, now to him, and the ending portion in verse 27 that starts with, to the only wise God. That's our benediction. In the middle, Paul's going to wrap up or restate five big picture elements that he stated way back in the introduction. These are the purpose, the topic, the antecedent, the scope, and the goal. First, we get the purpose. The phrase, to establish you, or as your translation may have it, to strengthen you, appears only two places in Romans. In chapter 1, verse 11, and here in 1625, Paul said in the introduction that this is why he longed to come to Rome, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, and that you may be established. I've said in other places that the letter to the Romans has multiple purposes, an apologetic purpose, a missional purpose, and a pastoral purpose. I also said that I think the pastoral purpose is primary. And there are three reasons I believe the pastoral purpose is primary. This phrase is the first reason I believe Paul is writing primarily as a pastor. That in the introduction and in the end, he wants us to know that he's been writing in order to strengthen or establish the listeners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's been the main agenda all along. It's the main agenda of the letter, so it's also been our main agenda of our series, that we would be established more firmly in our understanding of the gospel. And the second reason I believe Paul's purpose is primarily pastoral is the amount of time that Paul spends developing the gospel in the body of the letter through both doctrine and application. That focus suggests to me that he's not primarily introducing himself to the Romans. He could have done that in a much shorter letter, or primarily inviting them to join in the mission. He could have done that in a much shorter letter. He's going for life change. He doesn't want to wait until he visits Rome to establish the Romans in the gospel. He's begun with this letter. The third reason I believe this purpose is primarily pastoral comes from the answer he gives to the questions he raises. Paul uses an apologetic style by employing a skeptic to raise objections throughout the letter, and one reason to have such a long letter would be to give an apologetic or a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while Paul does succeed in defending God and the righteousness of God in his thorough explanation of the gospel, his answers aren't written to convince a non-believing skeptic. He assumes that his audience is on his side. His answers are a call to the listener to believe and respond to the truth of the gospel. And that's more the work of a pastor than an apologist. Paul's message provides a defense of the gospel, and it calls the Romans to the mission of the gospel, but it does it by focusing on establishing the Romans in the truth and practice of the gospel. If he can do the pastoral purpose and he can get these believers solidly grounded in the gospel, that's going to be their best defense. And that's going to wake their hearts up or connect them to the mission. So Paul's primary purpose is pastoral, to establish the Romans in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's next phrase states Paul's big picture topic, that is the gospel of Jesus. And this is how Paul plans to establish the Romans. He writes that God will establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. And these are all the same thing, the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, the mystery. Paul first introduces this topic in the very first verse of the letter when he says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. And then he goes on in chapter 1, verse 3, to explain the gospel as concerning Jesus, both the Son of David and the Son of God. Here in the conclusion, Paul uses three words in quick succession that have been important throughout Romans in connection with the gospel. They are reveal, manifest, and make known. And we can add to these three, two additional similar words used by Paul. One can be translated to make evident and the other to demonstrate, so that we have these five words, to reveal, to manifest, to make known, to make evident, and to demonstrate. And they're all words used to describe God's work to reveal his truth to man. So remember in chapter 1, Paul wrote that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He also wrote the wrath of God is being revealed. And what can be known about God is evident because God has made it evident. Then in chapter 3, Paul wrote that the righteousness of God has been manifested, and God demonstrates his righteousness at the present time. Then in chapter 9, he wrote that God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. And then now in our present text in chapter 16, we have God has revealed the mystery which now is manifested and has been made known. Paul calls the gospel, my gospel. I said I'd come back to that. He owns it. He embraces it. He has no shame in it. He boasts about it. At the same time, Paul makes abundantly clear That when he says, my gospel, he does not mean at all that he came up with it. The gospel is not Paul's theology. The gospel message does not originate with Paul. The gospel message originated in the Trinity, in the mind of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, before the creation of the world. The gospel is God's idea, God's plan and God's execution of that plan. This gospel is God's truth for humanity, revealed, manifested, made known, not by Paul, by God. God used Paul as an instrument, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, along with other apostles and prophets, to reveal to us the mind of God, the truth of God. And the revelation of this gospel didn't begin with Jesus Christ when he came and with his followers who taught us about it, but began long before there's an antecedent. And that brings us to our our third big picture idea. Paul writes in 1626 that the mystery has been made known by the scriptures of the prophets. And we might take this to refer to the apostles and prophets, who've given us the New Testament scriptures, which explain the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a possible interpretation. But I think Paul's connecting us back to the earlier point he made more than once. The mystery may not have been fully revealed before Jesus came, but it was previously witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Paul wrote back in 1-2 that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. And then in 321, he wrote that God's righteousness has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. Not only does Paul show that the gospel comes from God, he also shows that it's not a completely new idea foreign to the Old Testament scriptures. There is radical newness in the gospel. It's the new wineskin that can't be structured and lived out in the same way as the old wineskin. But even with all of its newness, the gospel is deeply rooted in the doctrine of the Torah and the doctrine of the prophets. Perhaps because the gospel of grace includes such radical newness, Paul recognizes the importance of making it very clear to us how strongly the gospel is connected to Old Testament teaching. And Paul doesn't just make the claim that the gospel is witnessed by the Old Testament. He shows us. So there are a lot of places where Paul alludes to ideas in the Old Testament, such as the idolatry mentioned in 122-23, or circumcision of the heart mentioned in 229. It's hard to count up all the potential allusions or connections that Paul makes with Old Testament narrative, with Old Testament worldview, and that is Paul's worldview, so it's connecting to the Old Testament all the time. But in Romans, Paul doesn't just leave us with allusion to the Old Testament. He goes directly to the source. He cites roughly 60 passages from the Old Testament. Isaiah and the Psalms are his favorite, so they get multiple citations. But he also quotes in Romans from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, First Kings, Proverbs, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Malachi. We can't miss that Paul believes that the new is deeply rooted in the old. It's possible to make one of two mistakes with a new covenant. We could see it as an updated version of the old, and we could seek to create a new Christian law with a religious structure parallel to the old. But when we do that, we miss the discontinuity. The old covenant was weakened as a system by the sinfulness of human beings. Part of the whole point of the experiment with Israel was that it didn't work. It could not bring about righteousness that is pleasing to God. In Jesus, God instituted something new. Rather than a law outside of us working to form our behavior, the Spirit is working in us to transform our hearts. Now, the other mistake would be to jettison the Old Covenant now that we have the New. And Paul certainly doesn't give up on the Old Testament. These 60 citations in Romans make it very clear that he values highly the Old Testament as useful to Christians for teaching about doctrine and about practice. Our challenge is to make sure we receive that teaching in a way that fits with the new realities of the New Covenant. Jesus Christ does not abolish the law and the prophets. He fulfills them. Avoiding these two errors is not easy. The error of seeing only continuity between old and new covenants or the opposite error of seeing only discontinuity between the old and new covenants. It's not easy to avoid those error, errors or to see how um, best to fit the old and the new. Studying Romans has been a great place to start. We we get a lot of help from Paul in, in this and in how we're supposed to understand the old covenant law and what's different between the old covenant and now what we have in the new covenant of grace. We also need to seek to know the Old Testament like Paul did. For that reason, I'll go ahead and tell you the next series that I'm going to teach after I wrap up with Romans today is going to be an overview of the first five books of the Bible called Grace in the Law. I believe that better understanding of the old covenant helps us to better understand what we have in the new covenant. Okay, so we have considered the big picture purpose, topic, and antecedent. Paul also states his scope. In 1626, Paul says that the gospel has been made known to all the nations. It's not clear to me what Paul means by saying this in the past tense, that the gospel has been made known to all the nations. What is clear is that Paul is not done preaching the gospel to the nations. He doesn't believe the task is complete. His big desire is to go to Spain. He's got more to do. Another thing that's also clear is that Paul's scope is all nations, not some nations, not select nations, but all of the nations. This fits with six, where he writes that he's received grace to bring about the obedience of faith, among all the Gentiles. And early on in the letter, that reference to all Gentiles might lead us to think that Paul doesn't see the gospel as God's plan of salvation for the Jews, or that Paul doesn't see Jews as within his particular scope. But once we get to the thesis in one sixteen, we see really quickly that Paul understands the gospel of Jesus as first for Jews, and then also for Gentiles. Paul may have a special calling to Gentiles, but he sees the scope of gospel proclamation to all nations. That phrase obedience of faith brings us to our fifth and last big picture element. This is Paul's goal. It's closely related to his purpose. And like the phrase to establish you, the phrase obedience of faith appears only twice in Romans, just here in the conclusion, and then it was in the beginning in the introduction. And limiting the use of these phrases to establish you and obedience of faith to the beginning and end highlights them for us. These are significant phrases for Paul's big picture. I taught a long time ago in one of the introductory lessons that obedience of faith can mean two things. Faith could be the act of obedience. That would mean that Paul's goal is to bring about the reception of the gospel among the Gentiles. Their obedience would be the act of faith, kneeling before Jesus as the king, receiving him as Lord and Savior. The phrase can also mean the obedience that flows out of true faith. I prefer not to make a choice between the two. And The issue of human righteousness is similar. Chapter 1 through 4 teaches us that we receive righteousness by faith. We can't do the righteousness required by the first question of covenant, to become acceptable in the eyes of God. We must receive the status of righteousness by grace through faith. All we can do is believe. But then chapters 5 through 8 emphasize that having received a status of righteousness by grace through faith, we are united with Jesus Christ. And because of that, his spirit indwells us, and we're now able to begin doing the righteous acts that are pleasing in the eyes of God. And we don't do them to answer the first question of covenant, what makes me acceptable, rather to answer the second question, how then shall I live? And so if we interpret obedience of faith as our act of faith, when confronted with the gospel, then the phrase goes with chapters 1 through 4, and the first question of the covenant. If we understand obedience of faith to mean the obedience that comes from faith, Then the idea fits chapters 5 through 8, and the second question of covenant. So I like both ideas, and I don't see a need to really choose between the two. Let's sum up what we have here in these three verses, and so also sum up our study of Romans. Paul's purpose is to establish us, and the topic or means by which he will do that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has owned this gospel in his mind and in his heart. He can say, it's it's my gospel. But Paul is not the source. This is not Paul's theology. God thought of this good news before the foundation of the world. He brought it about by becoming man, dying, and rising again. And he has communicated it to us in the writings of the apostles. This gospel is rooted in the soil of Of Old Testament narrative and teaching. The scope of the message is all nations, every people, every tribe, every language. And the goal of this message is to bring about among all peoples the obedience of faith and the transformation of faith that leads to further obedience. It has been my pleasure uh, interpreting Romans with you over these. 39 Lessons. I know that I have personally been established more deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ by going through Romans again, and I hope that that's your experience as well, that you're established deeply in him, that you see the grace of God and the love of Jesus, and that you're motivated by the Spirit working in you to live for him, that you feel completely secure in relationship with God because you know it's not what you do that makes you acceptable to God. It's who you are as his creation and who you are in Jesus Christ. You are completely righteous, completely loved. God's desire is for you to be able to live life as a true man, a true woman, a true son, a true daughter of the King, to live life as life was meant to be lived in union with Jesus Christ and in obedience to our glorious Father in heaven. So I pray that that is true of you, that it's working in you, that you can say with Paul, this is my gospel, and I am not ashamed. I hope you'll join me as we begin to interpret the Pentateuch or give an overview kind of to equip you to be able to interpret the Pentateuch, and especially with a focus on seeing grace in the law. That's where we're going next with observe the word. Now I'd like to end in the same way that Paul ended. So let's end with his benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.